Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. I'm J. Dylan Proctor, and you can follow me on Twitter at J. Dylan Proctor. And I'm not alone here in Cord Purgatory. In fact, there are two others here with me, one of which is Anthony Alegria. Yep, and I'm here to try to start a fire with this outlet right here by plugging way too many things into it. And if that doesn't work, I have this lighter with the Holy Family on it. <laughs> yeah, it's always wanting to cause a few problems, aren't you? Also with us is Amanda Sparrow. And I'm here to make sure that doesn't happen, because that's uh, one thing I don't need is another church fire. Yes, Amanda does have a lot of church fires going on. <laughs> Those at Trinity Church of the Nazarene have to be on the lookout. Anyways, moving along, uh, this is Podcast 59. What are we going to be looking at today, Amanda? All right, so our topics are going to include, um, we're going to read an article about a lady who steals a car accidentally and then keeps it for two weeks. Uh, also, we're going to talk, uh, continue the conversation about the opioid um, crisis and how that affects different people. And then we're going to talk about the statement, I believe, help my unbelief. Then we're going to go into Papa John is no longer Papa John's. Um, and then we're going to conclude uh, with letters to God from children. The overarching theme of our program today is going to be the role of doubt. All right, so we're going to start off today with a really interesting article, and this is actually from The Drive, and this is an article titled, Driver Leaves Walmart in Wrong Car, Doesn't Notice for Two Weeks. I mean, you know, it happens to the best of us. I go to Walmart, and you never know. You may just go get in a different car. And I say that jokingly, but seriously, how does, how does this happen? This is actually pretty good. And Justin Hughes put this article together with The Drive. So, an Ontario woman accidentally upgraded her rented Nissan for an Infiniti. Unfortunately, the Infiniti did not actually belong to the rental company. Many of us have attempted to return to our cars in a big parking lot only to realize we have the wrong car. I know I have. Trying to drive a red Miata or blue Subaru? Fortunately, these lovely devices called keys have prevented me from accidentally getting into a car that did not belong to me. Proximity keys are a modern convenience that automatically enables access to a car when the key is nearby or inside. For that reason, it's very important that the driver take the keys with them when they walk away. Or the car will remain unlocked. The driver of one particular Infiniti did not. When this woman accidentally mistook the Infiniti as her rented Nissan, there was nothing to stop her from getting in and driving away. Oblivious. All right, so that's just a quick introduction to the article there. You can go and check it out on the drive, but it's, it's, a, it's a really funny story. Um, I get that Nissans and Infinities, they're connected. Infinity is supposed to be the, the upscale version of Nissan. Again, I'm not here to, to beat up or take up for Infiniti slash Nissan. I get that they're kind of basically the exact same brand. And there's a whole lot of design logic that's consistent between the two. Infinities look a lot like Nissans. Um, some of them are, are basically badge-engineered versions of the other. But at the same time, how does this happen? Do either of you think that you could do this personally or have somebody in your life that is going to mistake their, their car for like a totally different one? I, mean, I, can, I, can, I can get up to the point where she drives off the lot. Like, I, I mean, I really could understand. Um, 
you know, sometimes we take my husband's car and I'll start walking towards a car that looks like mine and then realize we've taken the other vehicle. And so I get the confusion. I really do. But at some point when you actually sit in the vehicle, I mean, do you not look around and be like, this is not my stuff? Like, you know, wow, this is extremely cleaner or dirtier than my vehicle. Like, I just... I, I can't comprehend that level, but um, it kind of reminds me there's, you know, this huge thing, this this um, ad campaign about reminding parents not to leave their children um, in the backseat of their car. And so their advice is leave something important in the back of your car, like a cell phone or your wallet. So you remember and you're like, wait, isn't your child kind of an important thing? So, I mean, obviously people are Shouldn't not super memory. aware of their surroundings. I mean, obviously we've got several incidents of people just being oblivious of what's in their vehicle let alone if it is their vehicle. Right. And this lady, she even goes to say, look, there was golf carts in the or golf clubs in the car. When she takes the, the Infinity back to the rental car company, she's like, this was nasty. Like it it wasn't clean inside. There was people's stuff left behind. It was terrible. And the rental car company's like, hey, wait a second. We didn't rent you this. We rented you a Nissan and you're in an Infinity. And so I can kind of give a little bit of leeway to somebody confusing a Nissan and Infiniti. I get that they're the same thing. But the time when you actually get in the car, it actually has a different logo on the steering wheel. Like, you you were in the Nissan. You did see the Nissan logo. You were there. But, again, we're Wesleyans around here. We we do not uh, ascribe to Calvinism, though I will give one thing to, to Calvin, and that is total depravity. Um, when the question is asked, do you know anyone in your life who would do this? My answer would be yes. <laughs> Anthony, what do you think? Do you know anyone that would, would do this in your life? I certainly hope not. I'm sure that, I mean, obviously it happened. <laughs> yeah. And it did, it happened even not too far from, uh, ourselves in regards to the, you know, the world stage. So it's definitely well, possible. Well, what's Canada? And this is one of the many reasons why we live um, south of that border. We live in the United States, not Canada, because we can actually tell the difference between our cars. Um, we do not ascribe to the theft of cars. She does take the car back. It does get sorted out. So the conclusion of this story is she takes the rental car back. She kind of fusses at them like, this car was nasty. And they're like, look, lady, we didn't rent you that car. And they, they run the plates and stuff on it. And the car was reported stolen when she stole it from Walmart, though... I'll give her credit. I don't think she actually stole it. I think that's a little bit of, of being too harsh in language. Um, I think she just accidentally took it. I guess you can call that stealing. Uh, I guess intentions may or may not matter much in this. But anyway, she, she returns the car. The car was filed as stolen, and the car was returned to its owner, and there were no charges pressed against this lady. She came out okay. But, I will um, say that um, Canada has not exactly been known for its uh, great and perfect justice here recently, so could you imagine being scared? That you were about to get in trouble for a theft that you did not you didn't actually even mean commit. to do. Well, yeah. th- there's something that this reminds us. It is really hard to pay attention in the world. And that's really where this conversation takes us. It is hard to pay attention in the world. It really is. It's something which is just not an easy thing to do. Because paying attention is hard because a lot of times people only notice certain things. If you're somebody who's not a car person, you may not even notice that there's a different emblem on the steering wheel. One said Nissan, the other says Infinity. You may not even notice it. And this is one of the things which we're reminded. We, as people, we have all sorts of of faults and stuff like that happens. Look, it's not a moral issue what car you drive. I know somebody's going to come at me with the throat and be like, oh, it is a moral issue. And look, look, I'm a car guy. I love cars. Um, I I absolutely love cars. But cars aren't really a moral issue. But the problem is, is sometimes people don't pay attention when things are moral issues. Like what Amanda brought up earlier. 
leaving your child in the car and needing something, quote, important to keep you paying attention to that, like a cell phone. Um, yeah, we need to be able to pay attention in life and not just think that we have everything figured out. Again, our theme for today is talking about doubt. And a lot of times when people have no doubt about the world, they just think everything's figured out. They don't need to pay attention. You don't need to notice if you stole someone's car or not. You don't need to notice if you took your child in because you've got it all figured out. There's a healthy role of doubt. Well, before we move on, anybody have any last thoughts on accidentally stealing your car? Are we too harsh on the lady? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, and, and I think... You know, I think it was very gracious of the owner of the Infinity not to press charges because he or she understood that this was an accident. Um, but we do have to start, I think, as a world, we can definitely say that for most people, we are just oblivious. And so we've got to learn of what needs to be paid attention to, what, you know, is silly and we can kind of ignore. But there's a lot of things we've got to do better at, at looking at. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that does come to my mind, did the, the owner of the Infinity then charge her rent as well? Did she have to rent two cars? The Nissan was fine in the Walmart yeah, parking lot. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I'm surprised the <laughs> Nissan didn't get stolen. Yeah, the Nissan was totally undisturbed for two, for two weeks. Totally left fine. Not right. even towed. Like, it, yeah, it wasn't be, even towed. Wouldn't that be something you expect from Walmart? Like, hey, you know, we've had this car in our parking lot for two weeks. Yep. They're not paying attention it. either. <laughs> no, no one is paying no attention in the story. No one is paying attention in that story. Except that's... for the owner. Well, even the owner of the Affinity left his key. Or Yeah, the Affinity owner left his key in there. The police didn't even, weren't able to track down this thing with stolen tags. And it was in the same town. Like, <laughs> nobody was paying attention in that. The moral of the story. Anyways, we'll be back after a break. All right, so what brings you into counseling uh, today? Well, I was on the internet. Mm-hmm. And... This meme hurt my feelings. Oh, well, I I'm sorry that happened, but you felt that was um, necessary enough for you to come into counseling? Well, I mean, like, how can they hate me? Oh, somebody has been hating on you. Okay, well, well tell me about that person in that situation. It's the memes. The memes. So you think somebody intentionally posted a meme just to hate on you? They do hate me. Well, what if I told you that just because somebody posted something you may not like or you may disagree with, it doesn't necessarily mean that they hate you. What? Wait a second. No, no. This... Oh, okay. Cal calm no, down. Let's... No, I did It's not about... Remember, ladies and gentlemen, reason is a divine gift. So subscribe to Kingdom of the Logos. We have a very serious problem in our world when it comes to opioids and opioid addiction. Here at Kingdom of the Logos, we've been talking about this quite a bit because we want it to be something that people pay attention to, and we want people to realize that there is alternatives to life. You don't just have to, to be stuck in addiction. And we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about doubt, and we're going to talk about shame and the proper role of shame and doubt and all of that. But before we go much further, I really want us to get in some of the statistics and the details around the opioid addiction here in the West, particularly in the United States. So one of the most recent studies when it comes to infants is that once every 19 minutes, there is an infant born with neonatal or neonatal abstinence syndrome or NAS that is induced by opioids. So basically what that means is the mother has an opioid addiction and she has a child in the womb and when the child is born it is addicted to the opioids that her mother was using and now the child is in withdrawals. Anthony, would you share a little bit of the information on this? And I know for those who watch the podcast we have a, a visual we can pull up to go along with this. Yep. All right, so here we go. 
Every 19 minutes, an opioid-addicted baby is born in the U.S., which, by the way, that's just a statistic pertaining to the U.S., so that's got to be pretty ridiculous worldwide. And the number of opioid-induced deaths have quadrupled in the past 15 years, climaxing in 2014. Some symptoms of opioid-induced NAS includes high-pitched cry, jitteriness, tremors, convulsions, fever, sweating, vomiting, diarrhea, molting, difficulty sleeping, loss of appetite, and dehydration. All right, so these are some pretty graphic things. Again, this was from study. Again, studies are not always up to the current exact date. It takes a long time to compile information. They're usually a few years behind. And preparing for the show, Amanda actually had found some more recent data and had brought up the fact that it's only recently that doctors and a lot of people have started to realize the, the long-term effects of opioid addiction. So Amanda, I want you to share some of what you found from the Blue Cross Blue Shield site, which actually gives us a little bit more hope in this. Yes, um, so Blue Cross Blue Shield just recently released their data from 2017, so this is about six months old. However, this is the most current data, and this is only the data available for Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, people who are insured by them. However, the statistics, like one out of every uh, three people or one out of every five people are insured by either Blue Cross Blue Shield or one of its subsidiaries. So this is still a pretty good indicator of the st uh, status of, of what's happening. Um, one such statistic um, that it kind of shares, if there's a, if you go to their website or if you just Google Blue Cross Blue Shield opioid statistics, you can it will take you to this. Um, and it has one of the United States and it's really interesting for 2017, you can kind of see color-coded. Tennessee has more than uh, nine people per 1,000 or have some kind of diagnosis uh, for an opioid addiction. So actually, that's like the highest end of this um, statistic that in Tennessee, we're, we're one of the states that are most affected uh, by this, or we have the, one of the larger populations of people who are addicted. However, the good news comes in that the 2017 statistics have seen a drop in both the diagnosis for an opioid addiction and also a drop in it being prescribed versus 2016. And this is good news because, like Dylan said, doctors are becoming more aware of the side effects. And it doesn't mean opioids are bad. It doesn't mean they can't have um, some benefits to them. But we have to recognize that addiction can happen. And so people are being much more careful in how they prescribe them, how they instruct their patients to take them. Um, I know recently my mom had surgery because she tore her rotator cuff and she was terrified of being addicted to painkillers. And so, I mean, she tried her hardest to work through the pain, to use um, different exercises or other pain management so she didn't have to use them. She did take them occasionally early on, but she tried to get off them as quickly as possible. And so as medical professionals are becoming more aware of, of the addiction and the crisis that is happening, they're trying to do more appropriate measures to give people the kind of help that they really need. And so this is, actually, this is encouraging news that our country is becoming more aware of this and we're trying to make the appropriate steps. Um, but there are still people who are currently addicted that need help and need that support structure, and that's something we should all continue to work towards. Yeah, so one of the things about this is there is a need for a support structure, and this is something that we really need to pay attention to, and we need to, to be able to actually help people in our world that have this problem. One of the things that's unmistakably true about, true about any antisocial tendency, and again, I may need to do a whole podcast on the truth about antisocial behavior because that word does not mean shy. It means something which is basically harmful to the generic human condition. When you have something like an addiction like this, unless you are totally removed from your environment with a whole new sort of peer 
group, you have something else there to, to really fill in the gaps that are left from the addiction. It is almost impossible to get away from this. When people ask, where is, the, where is God in the midst of suffering? Well, if we're actually the body of Christ, we have to gather around people and help people. So one of the things that really comes to mind whenever we hear about this is, first off, it's not the end of the world, apocalypse, doom and gloom that it may sound like at first. Again, from what Amanda has showed with us recently, it actually, as people start to recognize the problem, it may be getting better, but it's still something we have to work with and address. It's still quite a serious problem. Nine in 100, or nine in a thousand people, not 100,000 people, even now I'm assuming that it's the, the larger scale, but just nine in a thousand people is a lot. We're located here in the state of Tennessee. Uh, most of us here are in a, from a rural area. Amanda's from Nashville, so she's sort of the, the one from the city. But it is a big problem in Tennessee. And the reason why we've been talking about this so much is in my own congregation, there were a lot of people who, who came to me and said, I want to talk about this. We've actually got a guy who wants to come on and share his testimony doing all of this. We're hoping to have that here in the next few weeks. But after he came to me and wanted to share his testimony, and I was talking with other parishioners, I've had so many people come to me and say, Preacher, I knew this person in, in life that had this happen. I had this. Um, even Tradesman Tyler, who was on our last podcast, Podcast 58, he was saying he grew up in a household with a, a parent who was addicted to opioids. Just about everyone I've talked to recently has told me about someone they know personally in their life or even themselves that has had this problem. So it's, again, a thousand people is not a lot of people, and nine in a thousand people or more, that's a lot of people addicted to this, so we need to deal with it. Anthony. Um, I mean, just lo looking at the little map over here for Tennessee, more than nine per 1,000. They mm -hmm. don't have a – it's not specified, so more than yeah. nine. So that could be speculated yeah. to be at least a percent. And that's just with Blue Cross Blue Shield, but again, with how many people have Blue Cross Blue Shield, it's a pretty, pretty good cross-section of things. Um, anyways – Let's talk about shame for a moment, and then we'll come back to a more of a conversation about doubt as the, the program unfolds. Is there a proper role of shame? A lot of times people think of shame, and there's this idea that, that, the, that shame is something which is inherently bad. I actually think that this is not true. Shame is not inherently bad. If you are a person and you're capable of having shame, and again, I know a lot of people struggling this, they have shame and embarrassment about it. If you have shame, that means that you, as an individual, you recognize that you want something different. Now, that's not the shame that someone else is placing on you, but if a person themselves, as an individual, says, I'm ashamed of where I'm at, that means that somewhere in your heart, somewhere in your mind, you are looking for penance. In other words, you're wanting to, to pay penance for what you've done, and you're wanting redemption. Shame is not inherently bad because it, it sheds light on the fact that you understand there's something better, there's something different. And that can really be a good thing. Amanda, I want to throw this question at you. Um, is there a proper role of shame? And of course, saying there's a proper role of shame is not the same claim as saying the church should go out shaming people. I, I don't think the church should go out shaming people. But if someone themselves, as they as an individual, they understand that they want a different something out of life, is that is that bad? No, I, I think, yeah, there's definitely an appropriate role for shame. And some of it may be language. I think we've tied some very negative things to the idea of shame. And so when we hear that, we kind of cringe. And because I think we can all be honest and look at the history of the church and say sometimes the church has definitely missed it um, in its participation in um, redeeming the world, is we've used this shame wrong, wrongfully. And we've almost used it as an excuse not to encounter people. And when we look at our scriptures, we are kind of bombarded with this idea of, of a church that is supposed to 
um, minister and be with people. And we see where, where Jesus often, when he gets kind of scolded by the religious scholars of his day, that he's there to uh, heal the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. And uh, even Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians about how godly sorrow leads to life, right? And that's what you're talking about. It's where that you understand your surroundings. And you're like, wait, I'm not living in right relationship. Something is wrong. I need to move towards a healthier place. And so this kind of this godly sorrow or grief, or we can even say godly shame that leads us, that prompts us to that place versus worldly shame is the shame that is condemnation. That is what leads to, to death. It is the kind of the, the scolding, the finger in your face that somehow you're worthless because you did something wrong. But really what the participation of the church and how they are supposed to help each other out is really to say, yeah, you messed up. Maybe it was a small thing. Maybe it was a really big thing. Maybe it was really bad. But regardless, you can find hope and transformation um, with our God. And so that shame, really, I think also we could just say the prompting of the Holy Spirit if we don't like that word shame. But that even before we recognize our need for a savior, the Holy Spirit is at work guiding us and directing us and saying, hey, let's leave the unhealthy things and find um, a better life. And thank goodness we brought up the concept of provenient grace because as of now, the only thing we brought up is Calvinism and total depravity. <laughs> so back to Wesleyan territory, we yes. are doing pretty good now. Um, I'm glad you brought up this idea of sort of this godly shame, which is not the worldly shame. That's a great thing and reminding people that there is no condemnation in Christ. We all have sinned, and we all need to come together. Now, back to the topic of doubt, because that's our main mm -hmm. theme for today. A, there's a healthy role for doubt. I think that people should have doubt in certain things. We should recognize that we don't know everything. Like when we're going to get in a car, it may be a good thing to doubt, hey, this emblem is different than it was an hour ago, but, you know, go along with life. Anyways, there's a healthy amount of doubt. But when it comes to things like, dealing with somebody with this addiction, doubt should not be a deterrent. And what I mean by that is you should have doubt, which keeps you from doing things, but also you shouldn't let doubt get in the way of helping somebody. A lot of times people say, well, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to talk to that person. And they have so much doubt that they're immobilized. Look, we don't have this opioid crisis figured out. We don't really have any accurate number of, of how many people are affected by it. And even when it comes to things like the infants which have it, we don't have all the answers. But the only way you get the answers is by saying, look, we have doubt, but we're going to work through it. In fact, the whole scientific process involves a good amount of doubt. So that's where we're at. Anyways, Amanda, would you give some encouraging words to people who may be struggling with this before we end our segment? Well, yes. And so as we've talked about all this, this is, um, there is a community, there is a place, um, Dalton Church, the Nazarene or Trinity or any um, place of, of faith where you can gather and find encouragement with fellow believers um, that, we all help one another through this life, regardless of what we're dealing with. If you are dealing with an opioid addiction, again, the church can help you or help you find places, rehab centers, uh, where professionals can help you walk through this journey. So we encourage you, or if you know someone that needs that kind of help, please do not be um, debilitated by doubt, but you can find hope um, within the church. So we, we do encourage you to come and to participate in life with us. All right, and we'll be back here in a moment. Church History Talk is at the pulpit, but do you remember when Church History Dog talked to Angela Marici? Let's go back to that conversation. Dog must ask, why did you build institutions yourself and not just vote the right people into office to do your virtuous work for you? Wouldn't that have been easier, Angela Marici? 
No, even though being involved in what's going on around us is important, our responsibilities do not just start and stop with electing political leadership. We must endeavor in everything we do to help others. You know, I remember when I looked around at the poor and impoverished children around me. I didn't wait to elect somebody. I didn't wait for someone else to do anything. I started a place for them to come and to be educated. Well then, Angela Marici, would you say that salvation does then not come from the government? No, of course not. No, no, ladies and gentlemen, salvation does not come from the government. Remember to find Kingdom of the Logos on YouTube, click subscribe, and hit the bell. Let's talk about doubt. In particular, let's go to the Gospel of Mark. Because in the church, there's sort of these stereotypical tropes that, oh, you've got someone in the church who says, you should never doubt. There should be never a role for doubt in the life of the Christian. But the question I have for us today is, is there appropriate role for doubt? We've already been talking about that up to this point in the program, but in the Christian walk, in the Christian life, what is the role of doubt? People who are critical thinkers realize that they do not know everything about the world. In fact, as individuals, we are a lot more complicated than we are self-aware. A lot of times we don't know everything about ourselves. Science itself has a healthy amount of doubt. If we look at the world around us, we find people who are activists, also environmentalists, again, I repeat myself, um, who don't tend to have much doubt about their ideology. In fact, you find a lot of people, especially in modern politics, who have no doubt about their ideology <laughs> at all whatsoever. And it's always a thing which really bothers me, people who don't doubt themselves. And again, I remember even being like in fifth grade and seeing people who were, I don't want to say their parents were activists, but they basically were, and it had filtered down to the kids, and you can't really hold kids responsible at that point. But at the same time, they had no doubt in their beliefs. In fact, as a kid, when I was in middle school and high school, I remember there were a lot of Christians who usually had doubt, but then there were a lot of people who had really the secular, atheistic worldview that had no doubt in their life at all. And as we look to the church, the question for us is how much a doubt is appropriate? Because again, I think there's an appropriate role for it, and there's a difference between doubting ourselves and doubting the, the hierarchy of the kingdom of God and things like that. There's healthy roles of doubt and all of that. We can look at the Trinity, and there's, again a healthy understanding that this is the Trinity. We don't need to toy with that and do anything that's heretical. But at the same time, we should put doubt in its proper place. Anyways, let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And I want us to really look at verse 24. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 24, it reads as follows. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Very fascinating line. I believe help my unbelief. Let's put that line in context. This statement comes in the midst of a story where there's a little boy, there's a child who is convulsing. The child has a demon of some sorts. Well, we don't really know. We just get this ambiguous language. There's a spirit in the child, and the child is convulsing. The father comes to Jesus. Again, he has faith, but at the same time he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. He recognizes that he does not have all the answers. He has faith, but he realizes that there is still more to receive from Christ. I think this is a great example of a healthy form of doubt, but again, who am I to say? Let me throw this over to Amanda and get her response. Amanda, what do you think? Is there a healthy form of doubt? 
You know, as you kind of pose this question, you've mentioned the story um, in the gospel, in one of the gospels, and I'm thinking uh, it reminded me of the story of Job. Um, and he, you know, Job has all these horrible things happen to him. His friends are telling him to curse God and die, and Job doesn't do that. But even in the midst of his conversation with God, is very much confusion, is doubt. And so, you know, you're saying there's there's a healthy amount of doubt. And I, I think to a certain extent we can we can kind of question God, not question God's existence or God's faithfulness or authority, but we can definitely be like, God, I don't get this. Um, I don't understand what's going on. This is what Job does. And yet because of that, because Job was honest enough to say, hey, I, I have doubt, God was able to respond. And God kind of responds a little harshly. It kind of just basically says, who are you? Um, were you there when I create the earth? But let me tell you, who I am, remind you of who I am, and then the hope you can have, even in the midst of doubt, you can have this hope that will sustain you throughout these situations. And so yeah, doubt can help prompt us to ask questions we never would have asked. It can help move us to places we never thought to go. Um, But it does have to even be contained, this doubt has to be contained in the faithfulness and in the character of who God is. I think that is a great answer. We'll be back here in a moment, but we're gonna take another break. Ah, Mr. Alegria, what is it that brings you back to therapy today? Well, I will say, you're lucky I even came back, considering what the last lady did. I'm happy you're here, and I hope that you'll be refreshing. Let's just talk about your your current issue. What what brings you with us today? Well, I was sitting in the last Sunday service, and then I realized midway through, all the music they were playing was at least three months old. At least. Okay. Okay. I'm not even sure that they even took the time to consider playing the new Hillsong hit. Okay, and and who is Hillsong? Who is... Hillsong is the greatest force in Christian music. Oh, okay. Wait a second. I thought that would be, like, enough to get jog your memory or something. You don't know who Hillsong is? Uh, no, I do not. But, but, sir, let's just calm down. What is it that, that is really bothering you? What's your real problem, sir? What's really bothering me? Yeah, what, what's, what's your real problem? What's my real problem? problem? You're asking me that, and you don't know who Hillsong is? Sir, You're trying to tell down. me what to be... Remember, ladies and gentlemen, reason is a divine gift, so subscribe to the Kingdom of the Lagos. All right, we are back. And now we're going to talk about Henry Cavill and Papa John's Papa John. Because Papa John's Papa John is now out. If you haven't heard the latest controversy, basically it boils down to this. In a exercise that was going on in the Papa John's organization, Papa John's sort of founder and face of the company, Papa John, he said the N-word in an an exercise dealing with behavior and social interactions within the workplace. Now, the context here is sort of relevant, but again, we're not here to to justify or or defend against this or make any really arguments about this because we see that there's a bigger problem here. The context where he said this, um, where he used the N-word, was in quoting Colonel Sanders and saying that nobody ever got upset with Colonel Sanders for talking like this. Look, there's going to be a, a whole bunch of podcasts out there to, to talk about how terrible Papa John's Papa John is, and there will be people who go out in his defense. Look, it's really unwise to do something like this. It's, it's dumb, and he shouldn't have done this. But there's a bigger problem here, and that it's that our culture is absolutely sitting around on edge waiting for the next outrage to come in our news feed to be angry about. And what's happened, so Papa John's Papa John, he said this. He shouldn't have said it. It was really dumb. I mean, nobody here is defending this. It was just absolutely stupid. 
But a separate issue from that is our culture is so outraged about this that it wasn't sort of enough for him to resign from Papa John's. Now Papa John has to change their entire image. They're removing him from everything, and the whole company has to go all in a totally different direction just because someone said something which was dumb and not appropriate, and not even appropriate in that context, but he did it, and now there's all this chaos which ensues. We can see it now. Papa Not John's. Yes, Papa Not John's, as it is now known. (laughs) But this isn't a unique thing. Our culture is so sitting around waiting to be outraged, and it has no doubt in the the depravity of its own outrage. In other words, it says, well, if somebody did something we don't like, we can go out and we can be absolutely um, scorched earth to the end of the earth if anybody does something we don't like. So to contrast Papa John's, Papa John, uh, I want us to talk a little bit about Henry Cavill. So Henry Cavill, if you're not sure who he is, or Henry Cavill, I think I may just change up how I say his name. When we were getting prepared for the show, I was like, I never can figure out how to say this man's name. But Henry Carving, there I can throw the dad language in there intentionally saying his name wrong. Um, Henry Carving, Henry Cavill, he's in hot water because of something he said on in an interview with GQ Australia about the, the Me Too movement. So if you don't know who he is, he's currently the guy playing Superman. If you watch the DC movies with Man of Steel, um, what else was he in? There was uh, He was Batman v Superman in the new Justice League Yeah, the, movie. the Batman versus Superman movie is the one I was forgetting. Um, so he's obviously the current Superman. He actually looks pretty good in the role. I don't think he's bad at that. Surprisingly, he's British, so you wouldn't know it. This man is now in hot water because he was having a conversation, and at first in this interview he was saying, you know, I'm in favor of some of the things which have come out of the Me Too movement, bringing down people like Harvey Weinstein, However, we've got to the place where men, they're not comfortable going out to date uh, women, and he kind of goes off and starts talking about that. And sort of the outrage mob, which is perpetually waiting for the next thing to be outraged about, they jumped all over him. And you see all these tweets that are out there again. At the time of this podcast, we're above reading tweets in our podcast. Hopefully that won't ring true, but you never know. Um, At the time of this uh, incident, there's a bunch of people coming out saying, well... Henry Cavill, if you if you don't do these things, you don't have to worry about it. And they basically proved his point, being over-outraged at, at things which really aren't that big of a deal. But the truth is this. The mob in our culture has no doubt in its own depravity and how far it can go in destroying the world. It has no doubt of itself, and it has no forgiveness. Look, there are people who do legitimately bad things. There are people who do things. I mean, we, we all have sinned. But our culture no longer thinks from the Christian worldview that says, look, when people mess up and do things, they shouldn't say we should have forgiveness. When people do things, we should actually see if they, they even did mess up. We, we live in this place where people are not interested in critical thinking, they're not interested in forgiveness, and we just sit around waiting for the next thing to be outraged about. And again, people are, are outraged about something like this, but they are not really outraged about things like the opioid epidemic. Anthony. The outrage mob is certainly outraged. Amanda. Yeah, I definitely think at this point I'm just kind of frustrated and almost done with celebrities or people in the public eye because it just seems like at some point, when do they just stop to think through what they say? And even after I say that, I do recognize that even after they have thought through things that they say, they can still get in trouble. And so we as a people, as a community, um, as a group that can definitely impact the world around us, We have to be the ones that use good critical thinking and trying to evaluate when is it good to be outraged and when it's not. Because there's definitely times to be outraged. There are times for the whole pitchfork and torches thing and calling people 
um, out on what they're doing is wrong and holding them accountable and telling them these are going to be the consequences of your actions and there needs to be repentance. But we, we can't allow people to continue to do bad things and, and portray poor behaviors. At the same time, we have to be smart enough to evaluate and say, look, okay, that was a stupid comment or uh, in Henry Cavill's uh, situation, it could have been phrased better. He could have made his understanding more clear or maybe the way it was portrayed could have been clear. Um, I really don't know. I've not done a lot of investigating on that particular story, but we can say, okay, that was something dumb and it definitely has some maybe dumb connotations to it, whether he intended that or not. But there are bigger things to be worried about, like actually being worried about the Me Too movement, actually being worried about executives that continue to portray oppressive and demeaning behaviors. Like, maybe we should be outraged about that. Well, that's the thing is, is people, <laughs> I think with like, when you find something out like Harvey Weinstein, a little legitimate place to be outraged. And when you find out the stuff going on in Hollywood culture, that's a place for like, yeah, maybe we do need to get the pitchforks. But when people take and equate something like Henry Cavill, in a GQ Australia interview, which again, the first half of it, he's like agreeing with these people. And they equate that with like Harvey Weinstein level. It's just ludicrous. People can't tell the difference of, of scale of things and they can't tell the difference between language and reality. One of the things that we unmistakably have in our traditions, the kingdom of God is the power of the word, but at the same time, the word is not reality. The word is a tool in reality. Um, you find in the Christian tradition that Christ is the Logos and that's Part of the Trinity, so that's a really important thing. But not only is Christ the Logos, but if we look at something like the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And if we go back to Genesis, in the beginning again, we find that God speaks and reality comes into existence. So the Word itself isn't actually reality, but it's the tool which brings reality into existence. If you go back to ancient Greek philosophy, again, they have this concept where language is a tool for manifesting things. Even if you go to the sort of thinking of the ancient Egyptian cultures, they have this idea that, that there's divine beings that speak and, and creation starts happening. The great philosophies of the world teach us that language is a tool. And the transcendent, all-powerful truth found in Christ, the one true God, tells us that he is the word becoming flesh so that he can use this tool to make our lives better. But a lot of people in our world, they don't have Christian assumptions. They don't understand who Christ is, who Jesus is, and they, they conflate language with reality. They, they react to a statement the same way they would react to an actual legitimate crime. And that's really a bad thing. In other words, it's, it's something which is chaotic. So we need to have a healthy amount of doubt in the things that we get upset about. Again, Amanda brings up a great point. You know, there are times to be outraged. There are times when consequences need to happen but we don't need to sit around waiting for the next thing to be outraged about. We need to actually be paying attention to the world. And for goodness sakes, celebrities have got long out of hand and professional athletes and things. It's just gotten ridiculous. Uh, people go to things like Hollywood and sports to get away from the politics of the world. So they don't want that there. Anthony. Yeah, that's something that I was going to bring up. I mean, personally, I just think that, you know, of course, Athletes and um, other popular people, celebrities, should try to keep their noses out of things that they don't actually don't know all that much about. But um, honestly, people just need to just quit putting so much weight behind it. Yeah. Why would you have – I mean, like, you know, whatever it comes to basketball, yeah, whatever 
LeBron James says, I'm going to take that to heart. Okay, you know, but whenever it comes to the economy or something like that, and maybe, you know, I will hear him out if he has some data to provide for me or, you know, something to actually back up his claims. But his identity as a basketball player does not and should not help his any of his claims concerning the economy, you know, so. Absolutely. I think that we as a culture need to recognize Which, again, that. when we were preparing for the, the program today, Amanda was talking about how so many of these celebrities, and not to steal Amanda's comment, I'm giving her credit here. Amanda was talking about how so many of these celebrities, they've basically tricked themselves into thinking they're the new, like, moral authorities. They think that they have the authority to speak on this. Which, again, we have freedom of speech in our country, and I think people have a right to say what right. they are. But so many times we think that because somebody has a lot of celebrity, that means they become somehow moral authorities. <laughs> and... And it's, it's a serious problem. People aren't looking to people who have spent time and they dedicate their lives to thinking about morality. They don't spend time um, in church even looking to pastors for moral guidance. They don't look to, to elders in their own family and community. They look for moral authority from celebrities, and it's just ridiculous and absurd. Anyways, we'll wrap up this segment unless there's any final thoughts. We all good? All right, well, we'll be back in a moment, and we're going to we're actually going to have fun. We're going to listen to some some letters to, to God. So we'll wrap up our program with that. Oh, no, ladies and gentlemen. It's me, Charlie the Church History Dog. And I'm here to share with you a man who lived a long time ago. A long time ago, there was a man named Anselm. And Anselm made an argument for the existence of God. I'm Anselm of Canterbury. My ontological argument for the existence of God is this. God is that in which no greater thing can be thought. Oh no, ladies and gentlemen, that was confusing and made no sense to dog. So let me share with you the dog version. God is that in which no good boy may best. And we will leave that there for now. Remember to check out Kingdom of the Logos on YouTube. Hit subscribe and hit the bell. Alright, in our final segment today, we're going to close out our program by reading some letters that children have written to God. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Anthony actually is the one who has this list. Amanda and, and myself, we have not looked at this at all. Um, well, I guess I should say that. I looked at it a while back, but it's been a long time and I don't remember any of it. So we're going to have fun with this. I want you to look at this. If you're someone at home, you want to interact with the program, send us your comments on this. You can tweet me at Proctor, And let's read this. Let's check out this list. Anthony? Alrighty, and also for your viewing pleasure, we will have pictures of the handwritten letters. They each look awesome. Yeah, there's always that extra bit of character there. Dear God, did you mean for giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? Norma. <laughs> Please tell me, how is mean spelled in this? M-E-A-N. Oh, I was hoping it would be spelled with two E's. Um, <laughs> did you mean for the the giraffe to look like that. That's awesome. Amanda, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I think that's funny that um, out of all the weird looking creatures on our earth that they thought the giraffe was the most uh, accidental looking one. That is true. <laughs> you look at some other stuff and you're just like, well, you know, the armadillo is the zeppelin of the opossum. <laughs> it's the, the rigid version of the opossum. <laughs> it's like a running joke. Like the, the, the opossum is the blimp and the the Xenarthus Singulata, the Armadillo, they are the Zeppelin. They're the rigid airship version of that. Okay. Anyways, um, next letter. Dear God, I keep waiting for spring, but it never come yet. Don't forget, Mark. 
Mark. Oh, this one's also good. Uh, I know this year in Tennessee we we had spring by by faith and not by sight. It was just sort of like freezing forever, and then boom, like the next moment, hundred degree weather. Hundred degree weather. There was no spring at all. Yeah, I was gonna say that definitely applies to our past year. Yeah, may, maybe this is one of the the nine children and one thousand from Tennessee who are writing to to God. Right. I don't know. It, maybe that should all be our prayers. <laughs> yes. See if we could get a better spring. Uh, God, please don't forget Nashville. <laughs> please don't forget Tennessee in your springtime. <laughs> all right, fall. so. Or fall, yes. You don't have to worry about me. I look both ways, Dean. Mm. <laughs> That's some good personal responsibility right there. That's nice. I do like the personal responsibility in that. And this also shows you a lot about the parents in all of these situations. Like, I'm going to imagine that person with the giraffe probably, I'm going to say they're in a school setting or a home setting where they've got some books somewhere that has G and giraffe associated together. Uh, and this one definitely has some parents who've been teaching them well. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this year. Oh, yeah, this is <laughs> awesome. So this also tells you that one, they're going probably to some sort of Christian camp. And two, they also have some, either they have bullies or they're, I don't think they are the bully. Because if you are the bully, you want your, your prey to be there. So I'm going to say this kid has a bully. Either that or they just can't stand one another. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's, it's awesome. And I think to your point about looking at the parents, you can definitely say, can see that the parents maybe were like, hey, let's, let's, how do we handle bullies in an appropriate way? And so this kid's like, all right, we're going to. You know, that whole thing of, you know, vengeance is God's. <laughs> He's really yeah, got that, that down. He's, like, He's got that. Sure, God can take care of this. It's good assumptions on the, the kid. We need to know more there. We don't know who Dennis is, but evidently Dennis is a baddie. Dear God, if you let the dinosaur not extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, that's good. Especially in light of the new Jurassic Park movie. That's yeah. just, that's great. I, I wish it. these had dates on them. That would be awesome. I don't know how contemporary these are. Oh. <laughs> but yes, thank thank you, God, for, for dinosaurs not being here. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> mm. Joyce. The alternative. Well, for like a lot of people our age, we have dogs instead of children. Yes. I mean, I don't have any children, but I have Charlie. Charlie the church history dog, which he is very good at teaching church history. He's quiet until it comes time for him to teach church history. It's good. I love how in their mind, like, the arrival is so, like, equated between the two. Like, you know, baby brother, puppy, it's like, eh, all right. Same amount of effort. Close (laughs) enough. It's the same thing in my life. I was wanting a puppy, but then said we got a baby. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in the church. Is that okay? Neil. That's awesome. That I think that great. one speaks for itself. Yes. Just leave that there. God, I would like to live. Is that I would it? like to, I think, <laughs> see a live zookeeper like the guy in the Bible. Love, Chris. I think that's how that's supposed to be read. That, that might be an eyeball there in the middle. Mm. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, interesting. That one's a little hard to follow, but I'm going to assume he's talking about Noah. Yeah, I guess so. Again, got some some generic uh, biblical teaching where they've sort of sugar Oh, no, I know things. how to read it now. I would like to live 900 years oh, like the guy in the Bible. Okay. I see now. Uh, All right. Okay, so it was 900, not zoo. Oh, man, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> I could only imagine in our day and age 
Would you be able to stand yourself at 900 years, years old? I would not. Somebody actually said something really interesting to me. Um, I was talking with some parishioners, and I heard in a, a conversation where, where people were talking, and I was sort of there in and out of this, and someone was saying, our bodies were not made, or how did he phrase it? He said, our bodies were not meant for long on this earth. And they were talking about some different ailments they had, and I thought, you know, that's actually kind of a healthy way of thinking about life. Um, again, our mortality looms in our minds, but in the kingdom of God, you, you understand God has a purpose for us. You know, our bodies are meant for so long. Of course, the ancient church, and a lot of times, even within the modern world, people talk about falling asleep in the world, sort of their alternative language for death, and I think that's a good thing. Anyways. All right, so I'm not sure if I'm going to know how to say this kid's name properly, but I'm going to try. Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Nan. Oh, that's a kid after my own heart. Is this uh, is this the same kid with the bully? Probably not. That would be funny, though, if the, the one he's wanting sent to another camp is a sibling. Oh, wouldn't we love to read the prayer from the other side? What's what his name? Peter Clark or something like that? Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, I don't know. You never know. The one writing the letter may have been the bad one, and his parents wouldn't let him beat up on the Get the other there. side. Dear God, if you watch in church on Sunday, I will show you my new shoes. <laughs> Mickey D. That's pretty cool. That's sweet. Oh, uh, yeah. You still get some adults that do that same thing, though. Like, are we sure that one was written by a child? <laughs> that almost sounds like an adult statement to be there. Hey, man, I'd be happy to show God my shoes. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. The, the pitchforks will be waiting for me. We used to have a guy that came to church that people called Beetlejuice because of his shoes. Um, we're oh, always man. extremely well-polished. And he, well, I can't give away too much information. All right, I don't think so. anyone listening to this will know who he is. And if so, the pitchforks, I guess, are merited in this situation. I will own my punishment. <laughs> Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother, Larry. <laughs> yeah. At least he's in the spirit of helping. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I love that. That's a, That was like my sister and I. We had a great relationship after we no longer had to share with Dear God, I think the stapler is one of your greatest inventions. Ruth M. The what? The stapler. The stapler. Is this the baby from the series of unfortunate events? <laughs> I can't remember the baby's name. Um, Sunny. Sunny's Sunny. his name. If, if anyone watches the series of unfortunate events, it's actually kind of a fun TV show. But in the second season of it, I didn't read the books, but so I'm, I'm doing the, the TV version of it on Netflix. But the, the baby has to work as like a secretary. <laughs> It's like a toddler doing secretarial work, so I'm envisioning that as the child doing this. All right, so this next one is too sweet. I don't say something like that often, but this one is very, very sweet. All right. Dear God, I think about you sometimes even when I'm not praying. Elliot. That is sweet. That is. Dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. Yeah. There's nothing good in there now. Ginny. <laughs> We need one between Easter and Christmas, I think. We, we've got a kind of That's a true. long time of ordinary you know, we, time. We have a lot of stuff in the church that are things like the Assumption of Mary that people just don't know about. That's true. Always, always those many holidays that people don't know about. And then if you tell people about them, they're like, well, that's not in the Bible. And it's like people turn into like raised porcupines and they're <laughs> like, don't you ever celebrate that. And it's, it's too Catholic. It's too Catholic. Don't, don't say those words. <laughs> <laughs> you dare look at church history. Should bring those holidays in here. Come out with 
looking like the the wicked witch of the west with like a broom like don't you dare all right well about that all one was day. the last prayer all right well we will actually end right there on our <laughs> list for time purposes um but thanks for being with us Thank you for watching. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page. You can search for Kingdom of the Lagos on YouTube. And if you like our content, hit subscribe and ring the bell so that you are notified on our new, about our new content. Our podcast is free on iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and more. So look us up and have a blessed day.